This is Craig Clevenger. You're listening to Booked Podcast. Two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Uh, we're doing an interview this time, and it's going to be with Rob Roberge. We recently reviewed his book, The Cost of Living. Uh, before we get him on, here's a little bit about Rob. He is the author of novels Drive and More Than They Could Chew, and the short story collection Working Backwards from the Worst Moment of My Life. He's the guitarist for the seminal punk band The Urinals, and he lives in Southern California desert near Los Angeles. Dude, I don't remember. Did we like this book? Yeah, we thought it was wonderful. God damn it, we loved this book. <laughs> so if you haven't read it, take uh, the 30 seconds we're giving you now, read through it before you listen to the Rob Robert's interview. That's right. Or at the very least, listen to our episode to be convinced of how wonderful the book is. Then read the book and then listen to our interview. There you go. We tell you not just what to read, but what to do, apparently. That's right. We just dictate your life. All right. Without further ado, uh, let's bring on Rob. Rob, thank you so much for taking some time to come here and talk to us on Booked. Oh, thanks for having me. So we recently um, gushed about the cost of living. Um, did you want to tell our listeners maybe a little bit in your own words what that book is about? Uh, well, you gushed so nicely, I don't think I could uh, possibly <laughs> come anywhere near it. Thank you again for that. Um, it's a, a novel about probably 35 years in the life of a, a guy who ends up as an indie rock guitar player, but it's mostly centered around his life uh, in addiction and uh, with his sort of deep, troubling issues with his mother and father. It's a happy story. <laughs> That's um, one of the things that kind of uh, we were prepared for when uh, we had Craig Clevenger on for an interview, and um, he, we were asking him you know, who he was excited about or anything, and he had recently read one of your books, and it was obvious that one of the things he liked so much about your writing was um, how well you wrote emotion. And uh, that definitely came through for us. So uh, where does that come from? Is it just your natural style or do you just have a well of like sorrow that you draw from? <laughs> I'm a deep feeling man. <laughs> um, I, yeah, there's probably a, a fairly deep reservoir of sorrow, I would think. But uh, well, exactly was the question i'm sorry like oh um it's just uh, one of the standout uh, uh qualities of your writing is is how impactful uh, in, a, in an emotional way your writing is so it's not something that everybody can pull off so i was just kind of wondering where that was coming from oh well thanks i mean it's i i sort of feel like if i'm not getting to an uncomfortable place emotionally i'm, I'm probably not doing my job and so it's sort of my yardstick like when I'm in revision, um, you know, if I'm not uncomfortable or, uh, disturbed by it, it, it probably didn't, you know, I didn't work hard enough. As far as the rock and roll lifestyle that's portrayed in the book, when I was, um, reading about the book coming out, I heard this kind of like, it's going to be a rock and roll story. It's definitely, um, not what most people would expect the rock and roll lifestyle to be like, um, I recently watched the uh, last season of Californication, and you know they, they have a rock star on there. Um, do you find that's a common misconception when uh, when you tell people you know 
this is about rock and roll and, and you know, life in a band? It's weird because I didn't, an early review came in uh, saying it was different than other books in the genre. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I read books. <laughs> I was unaware it was even a genre, you know, it's, and I, and I think it's, it, it's interesting because it, you know, there's a lot of things in the book. There's a, a fair amount about the protagonist's bipolar condition, which doesn't get written about much at all in fiction. And that doesn't get asked about much at all. A lot, the sex and the drugs are what get sort of focused on. So I think that's where it maybe falls into the, the umbrella of a, the rock and roll novel. But I wasn't really aware of it as a, as a genre when I was writing it. But that seems to happen to me. Like uh, my last novel, I just wrote it as a novel and then it got bought by a, a crime imprint. So it was a crime novel, <laughs> um, you know, and it, it's hard to complain when they're putting them on shelves, you know, but it, it's just weird. You know, I just, I think of them as books and then, then I, I find out what genre of book it was after the fact. It's, it's... <laughs> well, it's good. You don't have to pigeonhole yourself from the start. Someone else can do it for you after the fact. So. Yeah. You know, yeah. We'll someone else figured it out. <laughs> Um, so a lot of the you're um, in a band and we talked a little bit about this or you're a musician and have been in bands. Um, we talked a little bit about this during our review. How much of that kind of road lifestyle um, is reality that translated over into the cost of living? You know, a fair amount of it's from from experience and a fair amount of it's, uh, you know, from observation of uh, friends who are in bigger bands and things like that. And people, uh, have opened for and stuff. Cause the, the band, uh, in the book, is it a, uh, a higher level of sustained, uh, audience? I would think than any band I've ever been in, you know, someone who's like headlining at the will turn or the Fillmore is, uh, well, is not my career. I've opened at those places. <laughs> and the, the early chapter when the band is really young, that's pretty much directly out of, you know, those sort of band politics and what happens and, you know, bands breaking down and sleeping on strangers' floors and stuff. I mean, it's just pretty much stuff everyone does. You know, so a lot of it's based in either stuff I did or stuff friends did, you know. I guess kind of breaking down, I guess since we're in the process of breaking down cost of living a little bit, another one of the big uh, presences in the book is is drug drugs and drug addiction and really kind of addiction in general. And but not in a way that glorifies it. It's almost like one of the most tragic things. Um, uh, what kind of inspirations did you have for, for those parts? My really fucked up life is <laughs> probably <laughs> the primary influence on that. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's a really difficult thing. You know, you know, I was saying I wasn't aware of a rock and roll novel genre, but I'm, I'm well aware of uh, sort of addiction memoirs and, uh, you know, texts that have drugs at, at the center of them. And I, I really wanted to avoid like the, the two real, the pitfalls that I really can't stand about uh, that subject is that they either end up being some sort of morality play that's like, you know, don't do this, it's terrible for you, or they glorify um, and romanticize the usage and you know the reality is is 
you know, somewhere in between there for me. I mean, it's it's not something that's cool or good or great, but it's also it's nobody's business to to turn into an after school special and say, you know, don't do this, kids, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think that pulls it off well because, I mean, in, in no way does it glorify, um, you know, any kind of drug or use or any kind of abuse like that. But it also, I mean, really, I mean, for me at least, what I walked away from the book feeling was just how, like, how tough it is to escape. Not like, it wasn't preachy at all. It was just like uh, a very stark look at a person going through something. Yeah, and that's, you know, hopefully with with anything that that a character would be dealing with, I feel like writing it is at its most effective when it's it's illustrating the life you know and not uh explaining the life no matter what the you know whether it's a love story or drug story or you know obviously combinations and a bunch of narratives but you know if it's from from the inside of the character and what they're dealing with um it doesn't really need any editorial comment like i i prefer uh, I prefer art that doesn't tell me what to think, you know, and I, I try to write books that allow the reader to have that space for themselves. Okay. Yeah. Like it doesn't need to lean on some larger message. It stands on its own, that type of thing. Yeah. you know, every reader brings their history to, to it as well. You know, it's, it's a weird thing, the way sort of meaning and, and feeling and empathy get created in a text is sort of, you know, the the book you're reading that's merged with your history um, in life and your history in books and the sort of, and the writer having brought that, you know, there's a sort of uh, this, this alchemy where the meaning gets produced where those two meet. Like, it's not, it's not solid as a piece of content in the book to be extracted. It's, it's a, it's a collaborative process i think the way books mean for readers i like that a lot definitely like that a lot yeah i think for me one of the the things that really brought home was with the the addiction theme was more of a it's like you said the illustration in that preachy like there's one one of my favorite well, two of my favorite parts in the book there's one where where the protagonist says you know he, he's in a great deal of pain and he, and he has two and there was two pain pills left but he says he doesn't want to waste them on pain and i think that speaks more <laughs> volumes for what can go on in an addict's mind than, you know, than showing, you know, the, the strung out guy, you know, scene after scene after scene that that speaks volumes. And I think that's really what, you know, reading that scene, or there was um, a scene earlier in the book where he was talking about an addict knowing exactly how many pills he has, regardless of what else he does or doesn't know, but that if he gets (laughs) low, there's, you know, there's like a mental calculator that they can, you know, calendar that can draw out the number of days or the number of highs you can have before he runs out. And to me, that spoke much, much uh, better, I think, about addiction or gave me a better understanding than a lot of the drug texts that I've read. Well, thank you. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it's uh, it's hard not to know what you have left if it's not much. <laughs> One of the I'd say probably like the the most like heartbreaking things in the in the book for me was the love story and how how you set it up where she'd had a father who had had gone through addiction issues and, and left her. And so you already know 
that our main character is very is is going to be in a similar he's you know he's got drug issues as well so like you pretty much know where this is going so there's just this such a sense of foreboding but like you, you tend to get lost in that in that love anyway even though you know as a reader kind of probably what's going to happen yeah um well cool <laughs> i mean <laughs> no question in there sorry <laughs> no i mean that's that's great i mean that's you know that obviously that relationship is uh you know central to if the book works you know that relationship has to be something that the reader is invested in and i think there is a sense of i mean there's always a danger in any time you know with love you're risking yourself with someone else but someone with a history of having loved someone who's an addict you know they know what they're getting into and there's a danger there's an uneasiness there and uh and that was a it was a difficult thing to write about which again you know is usually a good sign for me yeah yeah i can see that all right turning away from the book itself a little bit um you're a writer you're a musician um you also are a filmmaker um I mean, how much, how many, how many hours are there in the day? It seems like you're a very, very busy guy. I haven't done uh, any any movie stuff in in a, in a while, so so I'm sorry. I, I would say I'm not a filmmaker. Now. Okay. I did I did a lot of plays and uh, um, some short films and stuff, probably about up till about ten years ago, and that's when I got back into music. Like I hadn't I hadn't been in a band. Uh, since I'd cleaned up. So I hadn't been in a band in over 13, 14 years at that point. No, about 10 years at that point. And then I got, I started playing with people again. And it seems like there's only so much time for like one collaborative art form. So when I started playing music again, that's when the the movies and the, the plays stopped. Um, I think, you know, there's, <laughs> well, like you were saying, they're just, there's only so much time and my primary focus is writing. And, uh, at this stage of my life, music is really just for fun. And, you know, if it's not going to be fun, you know, I'm just, I'm too old to be in a van with people who can't stand each other, <laughs> you know, driving 15 <laughs> hours for a show. Speaking of the, the music, cause that, uh, somewhat ties into, uh, the cost of living because there's a soundtrack for it. Um, I'm assuming now the way I see it, and you can correct me, is that it was kind of inspired by the book, or was that kind of built into your process of creating it that you wanted there to be kind of a soundtrack to the book? My editor Gina Frangelo, who's a wonderful writer as well, one of my favorite writers, uh, and I were, oh, I was probably like, what ended up being midway through the revision process, probably like. I don't know, on the second or third full pass through the book, uh, we were just talking and I said, I thought it would be fun to have a soundtrack for it. You know, there's a fake band. We could, let's make a fake CD, which was an unwise thing to do. <laughs> it was like, Oh, what a great idea. And then it was, you know, as it was coming up with, uh, I don't know, a few months left, while the galleys had gone out and doing the final revisions and things like that, it was like, oh, wow, had that great idea to put together a soundtrack, should probably get around to doing that, you know, because mm -hmm. I, 
and at first I thought I could just, I, I would use some odds and ends and old tunes and whatnot and just kind of throw it together. And, but then it seemed like it would be better to do it if it were sort of, in, you know, more in a, in a linear fashion inspired by the, the fake band in the book. So ended up writing most of it, uh, after the book had been through several drafts, probably. I like the setup on the website where it's got like, um, it actually looks like it's from the band where there's like the band's name and everything. Um, it, it, it adds a nice layer, but I can, I can, I not obviously anywhere near the, the level that you're talking about, but we're putting an anthology together and a lot of the things that fall to the wayside are like the little creative side things that you think would, would enhance or just kind of add to, it would be fun to do along with. And you realize how much time that's going to take and you have to start making cuts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it seemed like a lot of fun, uh, as an idea. And then, and ultimately it was, you know, I mean, cause it was, it was an excuse to get together with friends and, you know, people who, uh, we play on the same bill, but we don't play in the same band. So, you know, got to have fun with friends and things like that. But, uh, you know, if there had been, there's always a, a limited supply of, of, uh, time, and, uh, you know, it might've been fun to spend, to spend like, you know, three, six months actually really doing a record, <laughs> but mm -hmm. it was also fun to just do it as, you know, tossing together demos and having it be rough. I'll tell you through the course of, of reading the book, I probably listened to the entire thing about four times. It was a very, very nice touch to have that as an additional piece, um, you know, of the book as I considered it in my head, at least uh, while I was reading it. So kudos to you for a having the talent to do that and then having the determination because Rob and I are like, yeah, we got way too much to do. We're not doing any of this extra crap. So <laughs> oh, thanks so much. All right. So typically um, we don't do this very often, but uh, we, we did crowdsource one question for you um, this time. I'm going to let Rob because this question will make a lot more sense to Rob than it does to me. Rob, do you want to go in with, with this next uh, question here? Yeah. Uh, so. I'll just read, I'll just read exactly what, so we asked Craig Clevenger if he had anything to ask you on the podcast, and uh, what he came back with was, I think he's been packing for a move, ask him if he found my I Can Get You a Toe t-shirt from Lebowski Fest, <laughs> and I don't know if the winky face is from Craig or if Livius added that in later, but there's a winky face. Oh, I have not, but I will keep my eyes open, that is, that is a, something he needs. It sounds like a treasure. I, I, I've uh, I've been to a Lebowski Fest myself, and it's a lot of fun. So, A um, friend of mine, uh, a guy I've worked with, wonderful actor, Jack Taylor, he plays the uh, the modern dance uh, landlord in Lebowski. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's asking the dude to come to his recital. That's <laughs> um, a L.A. actor named Jack Taylor who's just wonderful. Yeah, he's awesome. He's, you, so you know him? Yeah, yeah, he he he's he was in uh, some dinky piece of crap I wrote that uh, was beneath him. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He every I, he's very noticeable. Like every time I see him in something, I'm like, hey, it's that dude from Big Lebowski. <laughs> yeah. So I know that people probably hate being recognized in that fashion, but that's how I see him. Oh, I think it could be worse for an actor, you know. <laughs> not recognized at all, I'm sure. Yeah. It's probably not that good. Hey, look, my waiter's here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more of that. 
So no shirt, no no sign of the I can get you a toe shirt. Man, no, but it, it'll have to show up. If it if it's here, it'll he'll get it. So this opens a bit of a door because um, we've only ever known Craig through um, people that don't know him personally or like have spent time with him as you know in a, in a friend basis. But every now and then he'll just drop some serious like obscure like movie quotes or references. Is he like a big pop culture dirt? I don't know. It seems like he just he has. It seems like he's got more knowledge on on some like on certain movies and stuff like that than like maybe Actually, he lets on general. culture and you know culture really. I mean, Craig's a, a pretty wide ranging, uh, interesting guy. So, yeah, we've been. Uh, you know, I have hung out at a, a, our desert cabin out in the middle of nowhere. So you know, I think uh, he's someone I would spend uh, you know post Armageddon with. Because that house is pretty much, that's what that is. There's nothing there. You know, <laughs> next services are like 300 miles away. So, uh, yeah, Craig knows a lot about pop culture. Well, knows a lot about culture culture, too. He's a really interesting guy. And, right uh, you know, wonderful writer. And post-apocalypse, that's, that's big. That's friendship there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's, <laughs> like, you know, people you'd have your, you know, general parties, people you'd have to an intimate party, and then, like, the circle of friends who, you know, you'd all face out with the shotguns when the people were charging the house. So, <laughs> see, Actually, Robin, I have the opposite relationship. Pre-Armageddon, I'm totally <laughs> dropping him from my life. So, if I know well, it's actually, coming. We're the only two people without shotguns, actually, in that neck of the woods, too. So we'd be gone pretty quickly. Craig's <laughs> a great writer. Um, he also gave me, you know, we show each other our work and he gave me some of the best notes I've ever gotten. Uh, and it's kind of funny too, cause I'm, I'm getting notes from Craig that are the same things I say to the student manuscripts. And I'm like, wow, physician healed, he healed thyself. Cause it's like, wow, I say that all the time. Did I do that? Yeah, you did it 30 times and Craig pointed it out each time. He's, he's got a great eye. And, awesome. uh, it's weird. Um, he it used to be up at on the velvet um i don't know if it is anymore but do you know how craig and i met no idea <laughs> it was uh um i should probably since it has disappeared maybe i should write it for some guest blog thing or something but uh um we we had both uh had just come out and cost of living had just come out and you know, it was one of these weird things like he and I both had that experience of we wrote a book and then they got classified as crime novels. And and, you know, without complaints, you get invited to different things like, you know, cost of living. Thankfully, got viewed as a literary novel. So I, I get invited to, you know, things where people talk about writing. Um, but there was this thing called the Men of Mystery Conference in Irvine, California, which is like, um, it's it's like Stepfordville. It's a planned community by a corporation. Like you're not allowed to paint your mailbox a different color without you know 48 bureaucratic steps and things. <laughs> and uh, so we end up down there, and it was all these, um, and you're at the tables full of people who. Uh, have paid to have lunch with you. And I mean, Craig and I just did not fit. 
there were like, you know, these guys who did, you know, series of like 15 mysteries with the same private eye and, and all that stuff. And, you know, that that's all well and good and I'm not trying to pick on it, but, uh, um, but Dean Koontz was the keynote speaker and he gave this incredibly, would have been colossally boring if it weren't really racist uh, speech. <laughs> and I just, and it wasn't like making any great statement. I'm just like, I can't be here. This guy's just disgusting. And I walk out and, uh, and Craig later called it. Um, uh, he said, I, I looked over at you and we were dressed the same Lou Reed casual. <laughs> and it was like, there's a guy with black boots, blue jeans, leather jacket. And it's like, okay, he looks like someone I can talk to, but so we're leaving at the end of this really weird day where um, people have lunch with the author and you're supposed to get up and, you know, do a dog and pony show about why they should buy your book. And it's vaguely humiliating kind of day. And uh, I saw Craig just sitting on the curb and I, and I said, you're all right, man. He's like, I, I've blown my per diem. I got to get back to L.A. And I, I, I don't have. I don't have money to get back to LA. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm driving to Long Beach. You can take the train from there if you want. It's like, oh, that'd be great. So we get onto the freeway and it's this area called the Orange Crush where like four freeways meet mm-hmm. and the traffic's always terrible. And I said, don't worry, we'll be out of here in about 30 minutes. Um, and he said, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm from around here. And I'm like, really, where? He says, Tustin. I said, wow, my wife's from Tustin. And uh, he's like, Really, what's her name? And I, I said, Gail Fornatero. And then there's this pause. He's like, oh, wow, dude. Wow, <laughs> really? And I'm like, what? He's like, well, this is uncomfortable. Oh, <laughs> so, no. And it was like, yeah, right. I'm going to throw you out in traffic. Really? My wife had a, had a sex life 20 years before I met her. <laughs> it, was, it was a great pause. He's like, oh, really? Gail? <laughs> So he ended up having dinner that night at their house. She hadn't seen him in 20 years. It was hilarious. Wow. That's just not, that's got to go in the memoir. <laughs> Actually, yeah, it should. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. What did I say? Dean Koontz was it boring was racist? Kind of. Boring racist, yeah, I think that was pretty much it. I'd, yeah, I'd stand by that. Okay. I, and the, the chances of Dean Koontz hearing it are probably pretty slim. So Cool. Well, and it... <laughs> You know, if he doesn't want to be called that, he shouldn't be boring and racist. <laughs> Maybe he could liven up the racism a little bit. That's right. Actually, it, That's it, it caused quite a brouhaha the next day. There was a, like, because like four or five writers just kind of walked out of the room and were just standing in the other room going like, what the fuck? And I was standing next to my friend Todd Goldberg and I'm like, what's he going to do next? Like come out in blackface? And <laughs> make fun of the guy and. The next day, I get a call from the L.A. Times, and uh, the guy's like, uh, so would you say Dean Koontz is a racist? <laughs> and I, you know, and I said, well, you know, I don't know the guy. He could be a saint. I said, all I will say is that he gave a speech that was racist. I said, I don't know anything about the man. I don't want to label him on what could have been the worst five minutes of his public life. You know, and they're like, so you won't go on record as saying he's a racist. And I said, I'll go on record as saying he gave a racist speech. <laughs> and they're like, these are distinctions they were not interested in. <laughs> so, but apparently, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, 
thankfully a very small fish because he was calling other writers who were blogging about it the next day like you know how dare you and I think actually uh, I did get uh, I'm not certain but I actually I'm reasonably certain because uh, a friend of mine goes to that every year I think I was banned from that actually from for you know publicly talking down Dean Koontz <laughs> I just wanted to get to the part of my life where I'm getting phone calls asking if Dean Koontz is a racist <laughs> because <laughs> that just sounds like i just want random people to call me and get my opinion on whether authors are racist or sexist or homophobic whatever it is you know yeah we, we've been trying to get james patterson's attention since like episode eight or so and yeah nothing no phone calls yet go with the tv he likes the tv mm-hmm. yeah yeah, no kidding. <sighs> yeah. That's like a like an, an army of chimps churning those out, right? That's yeah. uh, apparently, yeah, that's our understanding. Of Un- unapologetically. He what yeah. was the quote? This is my favorite thing. He said something like when he was there was a we watched an interview with him on on something and um he said something to the effect of uh <laughs> Uh, was it a Lamborghini is made? A Mercedes. A Mercedes, Mercedes is yeah. made on an assembly line, but mm-hmm. it's you don't call it. What do you, he's like? It's still a Mercedes, right? And that's like yep. he's saying like because he's basically a book mill. He like you know <laughs> yeah. assembly line makes books with with other authors, and so he's basically saying like it's still a Mercedes. His books that other people it's write still for a him. Hugo. <laughs> it's still yeah. fucking terrible. It's the worst book I've ever read. Was a James Patterson book. Ah. Uh, Anyway, sorry. No, this. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like, because like worst book you ever read like has to be sort of, you know, because it can just suck and you drop it after 15 mm-hmm. pages. Like it has to have a, like it has to suck but still have enough for you to be angry enough to to finish it. <laughs> well, to be you know, fair, like, we did it for the podcast, and the rule on the podcast is we don't. We have to finish a book that we've. Oh, that's fair. So yeah. it's kind of a cheat, I guess. No, that's that's not a cheat. But, yeah, I uh, don't think we would have gotten through that zoo book if uh, if it wasn't for this. But no, I know what you mean. I haven't put down a book now in over two and a half years because if we're doing it for the podcast, it doesn't matter how terrible it is. You have to trudge through it. That one Q eight four from Haruki Murakami was like nine hundred and fifty pages of just nightmarishly bad crap. Wow. And and we muscled through it. Olivia's also not a big fan of David Foster Wallace. Yeah, that that guy, guy too. Well, but Pale King. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's yeah. the problem. I, that's the only thing he read. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I love his nonfiction. Um, his fiction I admire, but it, it's his uh, nonfiction I thought was just beautiful. See, and I haven't, I've, I've, I haven't gotten much into his nonfiction, but I think Clevenger said the same thing: how he, how, how much he admires Wallace's nonfiction and and his not as enthusiastic about the fiction. But um, I, here's the thing about Dave Foster Wallace, and I'm not going to like get on a soapbox or anything, but like he's prime. His fiction is primarily really confusing and sometimes incredibly brilliant. <laughs> What's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to me it's, well, especially the early stuff is more clearly derivative of like Pinchon, whereas the nonfiction is, seems to sort of spring from its own well like there there aren't as many like places to point to as obvious influences in in the nonfiction, there's this incredible mix of uh cerebral and heart 
and the books, the fiction seems to have less heart to me and more cleverness. And I, I grow mm. weary of a lot of pages of clever writing. That's fair. Um, but yeah, I think he was brilliant. And the, but the nonfiction, I think really for me is the best of that is, is incredible and has, you know, an intelligence matched with a heart that is, is very rare, but I don't get the same emotion out of this fiction very often. The one, the one example, and all right, I won't go on forever, but in, um, brief interviews with hideous men, uh, there was a story about, uh, one of the like sub chapters or the, one of the actual interview parts was, uh, um, a guy talking about like, it was like a rape thing, but there was, the woman was very, I don't know. It was very like, the, but the way it was so emotionally impactful, like, um, like that's, that's kind of like the thing that I look at as, as the example of his fiction that I really enjoy. But, Actually, um, yeah, yeah, that, I, I, I'm sorry. I was thinking the novels more than that. Cause that I like, Oh that yeah. Book. Well, that makes sense. Yes. Okay, cool. All right. <laughs> I also like, uh, there are two in the first collection, which, you know, he was a much better writer by brief interviews, but, uh, Little Expressionless Animals, about the woman who keeps winning on Jeopardy, and uh, Linden are, are both, those are really moving. I mean, you know, he was an incredibly talented guy. Yeah, for sure. So you, you have a cabin in the middle of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> how does that, does that work for you from a creative standpoint to get away? I've, I've lately been, some of the authors that I follow online, I've been kind of looking at their... I don't know, you'd say like they're, they're uh, how they work. So one of the writers, he had just recently rented an office. So he goes from his house three blocks away to an office and that's where he does his writing. Do you find that being secluded in the middle of nowhere um, does well for your creativity, either musically or as a writer? Actually, the, especially uh, when I lived in Long Beach, which is in the LA area, about a half, half an hour south, um, and the, the desert cabin in, it's in an area where if anyone, it was a part of the GI Bill post-World War II, if anyone built a structure to code, the government would give them the five acres. So there are thousands of abandoned shacks that people built and then just left. So the cabin out there is on five acres of sand and it's cheaper than a car payment. So it's, it's you know, it's great as, as far as a place to, you know, I, I'll go out there for four or five days just to read and write, and uh, it'll feel like I was gone for three weeks. Um, and have recorded two or three bands there because the neighbors aren't close, although they are well-armed. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's a great place for, yeah, getting away and doing music and writing. But, I, you know, I can, I can write or procrastinate anywhere. Um, so I can write or not write wherever I am, it seems. <laughs> so whether it's writing or music or, or whatever, what uh, what you working on right now as far as uh, creating stuff? Um, I am hoping uh, by the end of the summer to finish a memoir that I'm doing. Looks like I'm on track to, to have it done probably in August. Is this going to be rock opera style? <laughs> Um, it, it's, uh, in a much different structure. It's, it's sort of an odd companion piece to the novel in some ways. 
um, you know, hopefully not a, a redundant one because it is it's radically different in structure. But uh, I've had some excerpts of it up at the Rumpus, um, and uh, it's it's been a interesting uh, process because uh, I generally I'm, I'm not enormously fond of uh, memoirs, and I I surely don't think I'm interesting enough to merit one. <laughs> um, but the book is, is coming along in a, in a kind of an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing about memoirs. I don't seek them out, but when I read them, I, I, I think that it's the cool thing about them, and feel free to completely disagree with me, is like you feel that usually when you're reading fiction. It's like it's like someone's kind of giving you a hint about maybe something about their sel- themselves. It's a whole different idea when you're actually reading a memoir and, and the whole intention is just this is my life and this is what I've gone through. So just standing there looking through like a fully open door is, is, is an entirely different like emotional um, connection with an author that you usually wouldn't have. So, I mean, as long as like they're actually interesting people, usually I think memoirs are pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, that is something that they, they can offer. Um, for me, what, a really interesting thing just about the genre itself is, is uh, you know, um, I mean, she was talking about fiction, but Janet Burroway said she, uh, she has an issue with uh, the fact that we, we say we tell a lie, but we tell the truth. And she thinks it would be more productive to say we tell a truth. And I think, especially in memoir, you know, you sort of have a Rashomon effect where five people kind of witness the exact same event and have enormously different narratives that they take away from it. So sort of going through life and, uh, you know, looking at it through the lens, like, uh, which I think I'm going to use as the epigraph of of the memoir, which is uh, Nabokov said, memory is a revision. You know, the minute you start... (laughs) the minute you remember something, you're revising it. So it's a, you know, it's a, a very slippery thing, like, you know, the quote unquote true story. And that's, for me, a lot of where the power and my interest in the form of memoir lie is, you know, how possible it is to tell an objectively uh, true story. And, you know, clearly the only way it can have any real authority of, of any truth would be enormously subjective. So it's an interesting exercise in, in that respect. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. If you're, if you're ever relating somewhat something to someone, the chance of you being an unreliable narrator are, are very, very great if you mean to or not, because yeah, I mean, anything you do is subjective. So makes perfect sense. For sure. It's just strangely, um, one of my best friends, uh, who's a wonderful writer, and she's an only child, and um, and I have a sister I'm very close with, and while I've been working on, on this book, every once in a while I'll email her or say, you know, did our grandfather really spray us with asbestos, like fire retardant sprays so we wouldn't light on fire? And she's like, yeah, yeah, he did that. You know, and it's... Because I'm from a kind of insane family, and you don't always remember everything uh, perfectly. You know, sometimes the emotional truth of of something is uh, 
it, 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 it like alters the event in retrospect in some ways. But uh, it's been nice to have a sane witness who I can check with, you know, like he did drive us off a cliff once, didn't he? Like, yeah, yeah, the paramedics came. Wow. <laughs> this, the synopsis for the memoir is starting to sound really, really interesting. So before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to promote? Anything you got coming up or anybody else you'd like to pimp? For what I have coming up, probably the website has the most up-to-date stuff, which is just robberbearish.com. My editor on, on The Cost of Living, who's the best editor I've ever worked with, uh, Gina Frangelo, she has a book coming out next year on Algonquin. Um, I believe its release is February 14, and it's called A Life in Men, and I don't know of a better book of, that any of my contemporaries have done. Um, there are books as good at it, at it as it, but uh, no one in my sort of circle of friends and acquaintances of our of our age, I think it, it really is the best book I've read in a very very long time. And it's always a really great thing to see people you care about doing great work. And uh, I, I would tell people to be on the lookout for um, a life in men on Algonquin. It's an, just a beautiful book. We're certainly going to keep our eyes open for that. That's uh, that's quite the endorsement there. Oh, it's uh, it's just beautiful. It's uh, it has the the weight and momentum of uh, like really good Kundera. Like it's it's uh, it's a beautiful book. Very cool. Well, uh, first of all, we're looking forward to seeing you later this month. You're going to be in Chicago, uh, doing actually. I, I looked on your website. You're doing three different events that weekend. I think so. There's a uh, the Sunday salon that we're we're supposed to see each other at, right? That's right. And that's different than the empty bottle, right? Right. And I think I'm teaching a class with Emily Rapp. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I went to the website just to verify that you know, I'm I'm kind of anal about making sure that I've got right dates and times and everything. And I was like, wait a minute, this dude's here all weekend. That's pretty exciting. But yeah, um. So we'll be you know, we'll we'll kind of plug that a little bit on the the podcast as well. But yeah, looking forward to seeing you at that. And um, yeah, otherwise, thanks a lot for for taking the time and coming on to talk to us. Oh, thank you guys so much, and and uh, you know, thanks for the 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 podcast review too. It was really generous of you guys. Thank you very much. All right, big thank you to Rob Roberge um, for for it was a great um, great guest for the show. Um, if some of that sounds a little disjointed, um, we, we had one of these situations. It happens occasionally um, where, you know, we're kind of done. And then we had some conversation afterwards and there was some great stuff needed to be added in. I'm sure Rob's going to do a terrific job. But at any point, it seems a little disjointed. That's uh, that's bonus content. We didn't even need to bring you that stuff. Yeah, that's right. We could have just cut it where we said thanks and I could have gone to bed at a, a reasonable hour. Um <laughs> But instead, I mean, I cared enough about that extra stuff to, to put it back in. And we, of course, asked Rob if it was okay to do the stuff after we signed him off. And, um, yeah, he was he likes it. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed the little extra effort that came out of it. All right. So here's the deal. If you're in Chicago, um, you want to head to robrobearish.com and go to the reading and events site uh, or portion of the site. There's uh, May 19th, May 21st, and May 22nd. He's going to be at Sunday Salon Chicago, where I just found out that we're going to be as well. 
um, May 21st at the Empty Bottle and May 22nd at the Bookseller. And then he's going to be in New York at the end of May and in Mexico. He's teaching a summer writing conference. So uh, if you can get out to any of those events, uh, I strongly recommend you do so. That's a full calendar. And since um, this episode is dropping so close to his Chicago um, uh, schedule, I assume you will have already seen us talking about it on Facebook and stuff like that because um, we want to give you as much you know, time to prepare as possible. Go out and check him out. Uh, great content. The dude's just a really, really nice guy. And and it appears that we will be bringing you um, another recorded reading. I teased this a little bit on the last episode, but uh, we have been in contact with the folks at Sunday Salon Chicago, and we will be bringing you Rob Roberge plus some other writers reading um, live from there. That'll be uh, sometime next week. That's right. Book to bring. Oh, wait, you... that's not next week. That's in like two weeks, right? Two weeks, May 19th. You know, uh, well, from the yeah. time this is going to post doing hang on let me go to the delorean and type in the numbers it's gonna be like a week from when this posts <laughs> see i understood that reference that's for anybody who's listening to the this is horror crossover podcast i understood the delorean reference everyone should be that's, proud of me it's not because he actually watched back to the future it's just because he went to the wikipedia page and read what happens in back to the future i'm sure you know delorean was romanian really i think he was half romanian he's yeah. coming back with the electric version i think Nice, very nice. Hey, one more thing um, I want to mention before we, uh, we we sign off here is that um, today is May 7th, and uh, today was the release of In Broad Daylight, a uh, new book out by Seth Harwood. So, uh, dude, it's like five bucks on the Kindle. That's awesome. He just had another book come out recently that This Is Life book didn't come out too long ago either, right? Yeah, I believe so. This is uh, yeah. Well, that's yeah. That was in the Jack Palms series, right? Jack Palms. Yeah, this is apparently a standalone. So I got my little notification today that that came out, and uh, kind of excited about reading that one. Definitely. And um, once you've gobbled up those those two books, um, there's more coming because you know where else he's going to be published, right? No, I have no idea. Where would that be? The book anthology. Oh, see, that's on my. So everybody knows I'm not really that involved in this show at all. I just show up. Yeah, of course he's going to be in the book anthology. So. One of our, yeah, I was really glad to have him uh, give us a story for that. Um, he's just an awesome dude. And when is that coming out? Um, Soon. <laughs> I was going to try and steal it from you, but you were too quick. Yeah. So at any rate, um, next time you hear us uh, will be the review of Richard Thomas's um, Staring into the Abyss. Um, which is probably going to come up in a few days here, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, probably three days, four days from now. Do you remember when we used to do shows once a week? <sighs> well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. It's going to be a solid month, kids, because we've got Dan Brown's Inferno coming up. We're going to have the Sunday Salon reading uh, coming up here soon. Um, lots of good stuff, and we're continuing to work on more good stuff. So more interviews, more book reviews. Um, Rob the other day said to me, <clears throat> is ready for this? we may have to put interludes behind us. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning when we were, uh, it's funny, there was a part, there was a part in time where finding books to review was like a difficult thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And now it's like, uh, saying no 
like is a common thing for us. So yeah, we're saying no a lot. So yeah, but we're saying yes a lot too because obviously we're doing far more uh, uh, interviews and and readings and all different types of stuff. So um, we're, we're really cranking it out. We are. It's the exact same amount of work for me. It's a lot more work for Rob, though. <laughs> I just want to give him credit where credit's due. That's okay. I'm not going to say how, but I found a way to even the odds with Livius. So be on this, the lookout for this. This is interesting. I'm I know. To it. Maybe I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. That's enough uh, vagaries, I think, for tonight. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Livius Nedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Thank you.